From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode is Beth Pratt, the California Director for the National Wildlife Federation, who was in town recently to give a talk about coexistence with wildlife. She is the driving force behind the Wildlife Corridor over the 101 and also was the main advocate for the famous mountain lion P-22 who recently died after a long flourishing life and a very object lesson in how we can coexist. In any event, we cover a lot of ground. It's a very interesting discussion. Happy to have you along for the ride. Hey Beth, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be here in Ohio today. Yeah, well, this episode probably won't get posted for a couple of weeks, but just so people know why you're here, a distinguished member of the uh, National Wildlife Federation is you're giving a, a talk at uh, Ojai Valley School about, why don't you tell us a little about your uh, program? Yeah, today we're, I'm just excited to be welcomed back to the Ojai community. Um, the first time I was here was in 2016 when they did a premiere of The Cat That Changed America, the movie about P-22, and that's when I first met um Molly and Hawk, and they've just been so welcoming, and they've become really good friends. But what uh, Molly reached out to me recently and said, "Hey, you know, we just we'd love some education and help on coexistence with wildlife. We've had a few incidences. You know, overwhelmingly, people in Ojai love wildlife, want to live with it, but we need some tools to do so. So, can you come help? And here we are. We have myself and other members of my team." Uh, who are here to to just help give people the tools to how to live side by side with wildlife? And well, specifically mountain lions, you want to make a you want to make a ruckus, right? You want to uh, just appear to be more trouble than you're worth. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I you know I I kind of tell people the best way to coexist with wildlife is to sort of learn a little bit because much like the weather, right? We learn how to tell if it's going to rain, so we can put an umbrella on. And so just learning a little bit about each species will tell you, because there are different approaches for each species. Uh, you know, for a mountain lion, yes, you want to look big, you want to look dominant, uh, you want to make sure that that mountain lion knows, A, you're, you're not a threat to them, but also that, you know, you in it, in yourself you or somebody yourself. is somebody you can be reckoned with. Um, and, but obviously for other animals, like, uh, I just did an article for CNN on bears, uh, you know, grizzly bears, you want to be very, very, uh, look very non-threatening and do when not look like, ball, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we don't have those here, so that's good news. Black bears, you actually, contrary to popular belief, you don't want to play dead. You want to also be very domineering and yeah, stuff. So you kind of have to know what animal. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you want to know what animal you're reckoning with. And I think the good news is, and what I always like to preface these 
talks with is 99.99999% of all wildlife encounters, whether it's with a black widow spider or rattlesnake, a mountain lion, you name it, end well for everybody. In fact, most encounters end without you ever knowing you had an encounter because wildlife does their best to avoid us. I know uh, mountain lions especially will stalk you from a distance and follow you like if you're hiking or jogging. Because we saw the in Ohio, the jogger who uh, was seen on the uh, uh, home, the closed circuit TV, the home uh, security cameras with uh, mountain lions stalking him. So that's what's interesting is that most people interpret that. And if you don't know mountain lion biology, uh, you know, fair enough. But mountain lions, for the most part, when they're stalking you, we think of them as trying to hunt us. No, mm. for the most part, they are keeping us in view because they think that we might be a threat you know mountain lions are extremely stealthy predators and you know for the most part uh if you see a mountain lion and it sees you uh most of the time that is not a threat they are just you know they're more like okay who is this but even mountain lions sort of on camera and i i don't know that particular incident but even if they look like they're keeping you in view it probably means they're they are but more for their security than others yeah having said that you know you also want to be cautious they are predators they are impressive animals they uh, everything about them is evolved for for hunting um they are an apex predator they're an apex predator and you want to play it you know safe and have the tools but i guess what i just like to you know tell people is the the rate of attacks is so low and then sometimes again if you don't know mountain lion behavior you can interpret behavior like there was that that video of the jogger um, who the mother kept um, oh, charging yeah. him. He was under no threat of death. That mountain lion was actually doing everything she could to not attack. She was saying, yeah. "Get out of here." So that's what I mean about just like learning some basic well, that, behavior. That one in particular, I think, should post that up in the notes. It was uh, really dramatic. He, you know, he did everything right. Except for the first step, which was try to approach her kittens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not a good idea, right? But after that, you could see if you, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people looked at that video and said, oh, my God, the mountain lion at any moment could have. But she didn't. She really was telling him to just get out of here, you know. And that was where, up in British Columbia or something? I forget where that was. I actually want to say Utah or something, but I can't remember. But um, but on the other hand, you know, approaching the kitten's bad. But after that, he did everything right. He talked to her. He he kept his eye contact, you know, so that she knew she was aware. And she just he just kept trying to back away. And at a certain point when he got enough distance, she she, she backed off. No further threat. Yeah, no further threat, yep. Well, I wonder... um, well, let's talk about, because I just read that wonderful article in the New Yorker about P22 yeah. by Alex Ross, who people don't know. He's a music critic. He's here every year in Ojai for the music festival. So I'm not sure how he got that beat, but he did a lovely job of writing I thought he that. did a lovely job, too. Mm-hmm. I think I'll put that up in the notes, too. But the um, service that you led for, for P22, I just thought that was quite touching it was it was hard uh i think uh, those of us who have animals know how hard it is when you have to make that difficult decision when the vet delivers news you don't want to hear but uh, you know i've never had to grieve on cnn or at the greek theater but what was became evident to us in myself very early on 
you know, when even before P22 had to be euthanized was that, you know, the, the community needed a place to grieve together. Yeah. And well, he was a celebrity cat. Just like, I mean, he was trending on Twitter the day he died. He was in Rolling Stone. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even keep up with the messages. And so it was literally the day after I said, we have to do some sort of celebration of life. We called the Greek theater. They were wonderful. They were actually closed for the season and reopened yeah. for us. And, you know, I'm just crazy enough to think we can pull off an event at the Greek theater <laughs> in 30 days, uh, but we did. But, yeah, I, I agree with you, not just because I was, you know, part of organizing it, but I just thought the, the you know, we were very purposeful about those who had deep connections to P22. We wanted to make sure they had a voice, everything from the school kids who, you know, sang songs, to Rain Wilson, who did a song about Cougar Poo, to... Uh, you know, Governor Newsom to our indigenous leaders. Um, I just thought it was such a, a, a great diversity of, of how people connected to him differently. Yeah. And I'm surprised and I held to it together. Other. And connect to each other through this event. I mean, that cat was a part of the culture of Los Angeles for, and so, just so people know, this, this uh, P-22 lived a long, full life for a mountain lion. Would you say he'd run to the na- end of his natural term? He wasn't, he didn't um, die, you know, run over or right. shot by an angry homeowner or anything like that. And I, that is something to celebrate. Uh, I, you know, he was 12 years old, which for a male mountain lion is, is pretty much, you know, past the usual lifespan. If he had lived in a connected space, you know, this lack of connectivity really... Yeah, which I want to talk about. Yeah, hindered him his whole life. He made it work, but at the end it became evident... Obviously, it wasn't working. His behavior changed pretty radically overnight. We now know because of all these health issues that, you again, you wouldn't likely see play out in a male mountain lion because a younger male before age 12 probably would have come in and deposed the king, right? So you don't usually see a mountain lion getting kidney disease or heart disease or the things that are so chronic. And, And we do see in our older cats, like our domestic cats, so... Yeah, I, I celebrate his life. He lived a long time successfully, much longer than uh, most of his kin in the area. It was still really hard at the end that to have to euthanize him, but it was the right decision. Uh, and as the person who was there every step of the way, you know, do not listen to all the conspiracy theories. Uh, I was there working with CDFW. They did everything they could to to keep that cat either put him in a sanctuary or keep him alive, but the, the totality of health issues, it was just going to be suffering. So Yeah, sure. But yeah, he, I'm with you. He, We did it. L.A. did it. He lived there. We coexisted. And if it wasn't for these really significant health issues at the end, including being hit by a car, um, you know, he probably just would have died a peaceful life. But, but it is that lack of connectivity that hindered him even in the end. Yeah, well... I, I guess the object lesson would be we can coexist peacefully with wildlife, even in a very urban setting. And then the other one was this cat was a bachelor his whole life. He <laughs> got to mate. It's a poor thing. He's, like, lonely. I know. You know, it's interesting. Mountain lions are um, kind of love them and leave them, uh, unlike, like, African lions and stuff. They don't have prides. They don't mate for life. They don't. Yeah. 
So, uh, so they yeah. They hit it and quit it. Yeah, exactly. They hit it and quit it. They're also deadbeat dads. They never even come in contact <laughs> with their young. So I think he was probably missing some one night stands here and there. But on the other hand, if there's any animal set up to be a bachelor for life, it's a mountain lion. And, yeah. and listen, I get it now. Like I'm, uh, I, I, I kind of joked with, you know, like, you know, bachelorhood ain't so bad. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's some mm-hmm. upsides. Yeah. He didn't answer to anyone for his time. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't give up, though, I will tell you that. Um, Miguel Ordiana, who uh, is one of the biologists who um, works for the Natural History Museum, he helped discover that first photo of P-22. And he has cameras up and has continued to have cameras up around the park. And as they got better, we, you know, they got sound on them and everything. And it was a few years ago he captured some sound of P-22 making this kind of clicking sound, like if you have domestic cats, you might have heard them do it once in a while. Mountain lions are extremely quiet animals, except yeah. for when they're mating. And that sound is akin to, hey, is anybody out there? Oh. And so he was still asking. He was uh, he was swiping on Tinder. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was doing the swipe. But one more thing on his legacy, to your point, it is something to celebrate because the, the day... Um, he died the day he was euthanized. You know, I got back to my hotel late. We didn't, we went and had tequila shots, did a number of things, but I had a great view of Griffith Park. And I remember looking out at Griffith Park very sad, saying, you know, thinking, boy, it's never going to be the same. But then I thought about that for a minute. And that same thought I thought was very hopeful that, yeah, nobody's ever going to be able to look at Griffith Park the same. We're always going to know that a mountain lion can live there and that well, he you that know he's habitat yeah he showed us what was possible and you can never unsee that and that yeah. to me is the hopeful part i guess the unlikelihood is another cat making the being able to get across all those busy freeways it's just unimaginable to me how he even got there in the first place 405 and the 101 and I, 12 lanes of traffic. Oh my goodness. How? That, that cat was remarkable. Um, as we know, most of his kin die doing it. Um, yeah, in fact, ma- there was another one died fairly recently. Yeah, most males is the National Park Service who's been studying the, the mountain lion population in the Santa Monica Mountains for over 20 years now. Most males don't make it to two. They either get hit or just, you know, what, whatever other urban challenge. But, um, and I've retraced his route or his likely route now for eight years in a row. This will be the eighth year. I don't know how I live. There's no sidewalks on Maholland. You know, I've stood at the 101 at 2 a.m. I wouldn't even try crossing it. And so, uh, he, yeah, that he made it was a miracle. Um, another cat, who knows? There is a cat that's been hanging around in between the 101 and the 405 for a few years now. Uh, they have, he's been a little tricky. They have, or sneaky. They've not been able to get a collar on him to track him, but he gets picked up on cameras. Uh, he has never made a move to get into Griffith Park. So, and that would be crossing the 101. I never say never, but, you know, P22 was the only one to make it over decades. So it'd be a long shot. Yeah. Well, it must have been pretty good ha- habitat if he lived such a healthy life. Yeah. What's interesting is what most, Mountain lions, especially males, they require huge territories, about 100, 150 square miles. But these territories are based on 
prey availability, right? So how much prey, which... How for, many cats and dogs? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Mostly mule deer, actually. Um, 87% of these cats' diets, according to some of the surveys, and, and you should not envy the National Park Service biologists their jobs. They hike out to P-22. They'd hike out to every kill site for him, crawling through poison oak and looking uh, at rotting, decaying corpses, ca- carcasses. Yeah. 87% of what they, they want to eat mule deer. That's their yeah. prime diet. But interestingly, the reason P-22 is able to make it in eight square miles, which is extremely small, wow. is because you have this over, uh, you know, this overabundance or unnatural abundance of mule deer in Griffith Park because of all the gardens that the celebrities have, sure. because of Forest Lawn Cemetery. Um, you know, you have a, a watered lawn. So you had plenty of prey there in a way that you wouldn't, Probably, you know, a few hundred years ago. The Santa Susanas or the Santa Monica Mountains yeah. or the other parts of the territory. But there's, there's something really fun to me about that, that this mountain line, you know, it's the ultimate, like, Hollywood mashup. This mountain line was able to say, stay alive in a smaller space than usual because of Hollywood celebrities both alive and dead, you know, forest lawn, <laughs> being the lawn having the, the, you know, the lawn covering them was watered. And then the alive celebrities that stay oh, around the park. Kept his profile high. Yeah, yeah, kept his yeah. profile high. <laughs> wow. And he was, uh, was he an Instagram star? Yes, he uh, is my favorite job. Uh, and I n- never gave it up fully was to be P22 on Facebook and Twitter. That was always really fun. <laughs> okay, I'll post that link too. <laughs> Well, speaking about somebody else moving into that habitat, this requires what used to be just natural movements, which, thanks to man, no longer exist. But you have been instrumental in constructing these wildlife corridors, and I'd really like to dig deep into that because the one that you helped complete is the largest wildlife corridor ever built. It looks like it might be, although I'm happy to have somebody knock us out. I mean, yeah. I'd love more bigger ones, right? But yes. But tell us, uh, mm-hmm. where is this? Uh, what is the, how did you decide on this particular location? Mm-hmm. And how's it going? Is it being used? Like, what, what's the been? Yeah, so it's just such an exciting time because it's, it's not finished yet, so not used yet. But we broke ground last year. Uh, if we stay on track, and I think the weather did delay a little bit, but we're seeing if we can catch up. Um, it should the you know be open for for business for wildlife in uh, late 2025. But uh, P22 is also you know so instrumental to this story. He's the one that got me involved when I heard about him, much like everybody else in 2012, by reading the LA Times story. You know, I called up the biologist Jeff Sickich, who st- had collared him and. Um, we're now good friends, so we laugh about this, but he, I didn't believe it. I just didn't believe a, a Griffith Park could support a mountain lion, but he took me on a tour and then he told me about the plight all of these wildlife are facing, especially P22, which is the roads were in their way. Oh, and it was proving deadly, not just hitting, you know, not just the sort of obvious problem, which is they're getting hit by cars and dying, which is terrible enough, but that so much so, these populations were so isolated by the freeways they couldn't they could they were starting to inbreed themselves out of existence i can, I can see that yeah because they could you know you couldn't have non relatives you mm-hmm. know come in and expand the expand gene the, the gene pool so 
So when he told me that, I was like, well, God, how can I help? And he said, well, this, this little wildlife crossing we're thinking of, you know, we, we need. And I'm like, oh, sure. How hard can it be? Not knowing it would be 10 years of my life in a $100 million project. But well, how did they source the location? Yeah. The so the location was really, you know, uh, uh, the location, two things. What we know, wildlife crossings are nothing new. Um, we have decades of science around them, but what is new is plopping one down over one of the busiest freeways in the country and in the middle of the Los Angeles area. You just, these are all out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we know the number one successful thing you need for a, a wildlife crossing to work is protected space on both sides of the freeway. You can't build a crossing and drop them down in There's a target park. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't work. This is actually the last place you can put in that whole area, the, the, the 101, the last place that has last 1600 feet that has protected space on both sides. Thank you, Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy. You know, another partner in this project. But also the second piece, the National Park Service had, you know, over a hundred thousand GPS points of mountain lions and other wildlife. You know, it basically funnels them to that point. If you look on a map, oh, yeah. the green space narrows down to that last 1,600 feet. So they were being funneled there and most of them just turning around saying, uh-uh, not, not going to do it. But to, but to just make sure, to make triple sure, uh, in 2015, while we were looking at the feasibility study, um, they brought out um, scientists and biologists and engineers from all over the world, some who had worked on Banff crossings, which is probably the most famous crossings, to take a look at... Wait a minute, what does Banff stand for? Uh, Banff is Banff National Park. Oh, uh, oh yeah, okay. yeah, you know, uh, yeah. Alberta. They, they have yeah, uh, some Jasper of the... Jasper and all that. You got it. Some of the first, uh, sort of the gold standard of crossings on the mm. on this continent. So those scientists and, and others came down in 2015, took a tour, two-day tour, and yeah, they unanimously agreed. There was a big report written up. That's where it needs to go. And it needs to be an overpass for maximum. So, and that's yeah, where no we were underpass. Is it because of their natural reluctance to go subterranean, or is it just more natural looking? Or you know, every a couple a couple reasons for this site. What I like to say is every wildlife crossing is site specific. So for some areas, an underpass is fine. The reason we chose it is, A, not every species will use an underpass. Some will, and not all underpasses are alike, right? If you have a really open underpass, which some crossings mm. do, but we can't do that at over the 101. So we did look into, the feasibility study looked into a tunnel, and for two reasons it was ruled out. One is we wanted to reconnect this ecosystem for all wildlife and plants. Plants okay. need connectivity, too. So that was going to be an overpass because an underpass would have eliminated some species and the vegetation. Yeah, I also wonder if prey animals would be reluctant because of the... Exactly. Yeah. The dark. The deer is not going to use. And this is not just a two-lane road. This is 10 lanes and an access road. It was actually going to be more expensive to build, uh, at least according to the estimates from uh, Caltrans. Well, you can't... it was very expensive to begin with, right? You know... It, what is the... The, the so just let me finish the tunnel. The, okay. You would have had to drill under the freeway. Um, you can't drill under the freeway. I'm sorry. You can't drill under the freeway that long. You would have had to cut open the freeway and lower oh. a mo. We would have had to shut down the 101 for a year. We would have lost Not all support. Uh, so the but the so it ruled out that too. But the the biological need really pointed to to overpass. Uh, but to your question, yeah, I, I you know. 
it, the ca- final Caltrans price tag, we think, although we still have to get an S, the final estimate on the stage two over Agora is about 92 million. I, as the person who had to raise every dollar, if, if I thought they were spending one unneeded cent, I would have cried foul. But when you think of what we're trying to do here, you know, 10 lanes, yeah. it's not even just a bridge. You're putting a biological landscape on top. And then you compare it to other Caltrans projects. Uh, it just the price tag actually seems fairly reasonable to me. Well, when you also think about that's for the first one. As you learn and grow, then they start getting cheaper and cheaper as you can start scaling. Yeah, and and not I I will say we picked out of the gate the toughest location because it is it is the biggest um, obstacle to connectivity in the era. But when you look at other area roads we need to tackle, like the 118, the 124, they're not going to need as big a solution as Liberty Canyon. In fact, like the 118 has an equestrian tunnel. There may be something we can do with that. They're not as highly trafficked roads. They're not as, um, as wide. So, yeah, not every and, – and in, in some locations, you might even be able to just do some fencing or landscaping to lead – kind of hurt them through. Exactly. So, guide them through. Yeah. yeah, so I think we picked – the good news is I think we picked the, the most challenging one out of the gate. <laughs> well, I think of like just the natural beauty of it, though, too, to have a connection like that. I'm thinking of like High Line and New York City. Yes, I've so been on that, yeah. I, I get the that sort of vibe from the project, although, you know, they're very different purposes. But to have a, and you know, a beautiful setting in a urban area really connects people back to first principles. I think you nailed it. When you're driving, when this is completed, your view is going to be um, a beautiful land. You know, the native landscape rather than the road. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually putting some of the natural landscape back. And also think about this. One of the busiest freeways in the country, you'll be commuting, and there could be a mountain lion walking over you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen a mountain lion in the wild? I have. I've been really lucky. Um, most yeah, pe- tell me about it because they are elusive. They're really elusive. Uh, I, you know, they're called ghost cats for a reason, and that's why, you know, Mountain lions see us every day. We just don't oh, see yeah. them. Um, I've seen five. It's I, I'm astounded. I've um, was, was uh, fortunate enough to collar a cat with Jeff Sickich, P42, who lives over near Pacific Palisades. But the other four times um, were just happenstance. The first time I ever saw one, I was walking some switchbacks with my jo- my dog near where I live outside Yosemite. And you could, you know, the switchbacks were steep enough. I looked up a few and I saw this head looking down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is a chow dog doing up there? And then I'm like, oh, that's not a chow dog. That's, <laughs> yeah, cause it had kind of the rounder ears. I see that, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's a. In the shape of the face. Yeah, yeah that's a mountain lion. Okay, uh, great. Um, and then I've seen a couple, I've, I have mountain lions on my property. I've seen twice in person. My parents had a mountain lion drinking at their bird bath every night for a week and, like clockwork, he had a deer kill in their yard, so I was able to view that. So yeah, I and I saw a mountain lion with her um, two kittens on Christmas Day one year. It was really wonderful. And this is up near you. Th- these are all sightings up near me. And then I don't, you know, he wasn't in the wild, but I was so grateful to the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the San Diego 
Safari Park, they let me spend some time alone with P-22 the day before they, they had to euthanize uh, them, and that was pretty remarkable. I'll yeah. Mm-hmm. Just that moment sharing. With yeah. The, he, the it, things he's seen, no other mountain lion has lived that kind of a life. No, and up to the end where I'm sure he, you know, no mountain lion history ever had a, a blonde chick sitting there sobbing in front of him, right? Oh. <laughs> you know, that was, that was a moment for, you know, you unprecedented. Wonder, what the heck is <laughs> yeah, going on here? Oh, that's sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen one and that was while I was sitting in a diner and it ran through a young female or juvenile. I don't even know what gender it was. I think it was a female because they tracked it later. It just ran through the parking lot. Wow. Just ran right through the parking lot. We all turned around in our stools just like on cue, and there's this cat. Whoosh. It was just a streak. Now, I've seen dead cats because when I was a reporter, I would cover the oh, can- Fish and Wildlife or uh, Department of Fish and Game, and they would always call me out whenever there was a kill or they so had you- to move a bear or something. And it was always just like, oh, it's, it's so sad. I've had been on a lot of those too, and I, yeah, it's just this remarkable, beautiful cat My reduced God, they're to. Just majestic. They are. They're just. You know what I love about you know, and, and that you got to see one. I I'm working on. Um, I have a book uh, that's coming out next year called Yosemite Wildlife. On yeah, you have several yeah, books. Yosemite I'll, Wildlife. I'll put them up in the notes. And. Um, I've been wanting to write this book my whole life. I love Yosemite. I live outside the park. I worked there for a decade. But I was interviewing Shelton Johnson. Some of you may know him. He's a, a famous park ranger in Yosemite. He uh, is an interpretive ranger. He wrote a book on the Buffalo Soldiers, the African-Americans who were the first protectors of the park. Yeah, but he also Fort loves... Huachuca. Wait a minute. Uh, mm-hmm. Buffalo Soldiers would come from Fort Huachuca. I think that's right? where they were, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And they, they were some of the early protectors of Yosemite. But Shelton loves wildlife as well, so I was interviewing him for my book, and he said something so profound to me that that is going to be in the book, but I'll offer it here too. He said, what I love about mountain lions, and I'm paraphrasing, is that they are stealth animals. Mm-hmm. You know, they are good at not being seen. They're ghost cats. And so if you're seeing one, they are making a choice to let you see yeah. them, and it is a gift. And I love that sentiment, and it's true. They they know how to yeah. stay hidden. You so think about it. if you if they didn't want you to see them, you just wouldn't. You just wouldn't. Yep, yeah, exactly. Well, I've also been interested in other cats because when I was in Southeast Arizona, we just mentioned in Fort Huachuca, which uh, corner of Southeast Arizona, Southwestern New Mexico, the boot heel of, of New Mexico, the Gray Ranch, the Animas Mountains, Peloncillo, Magdalena Canyon. Those are all <laughs> wildlife corridors. I'm sure you've heard of those places. And the San Pedro River, which is one of the few rivers that flows south to north, but always with the jaguarundis yeah. and the ocelots and jaguars were a big thing back in the early 90s through the... I don't know if there's any, been any sightings lately. Well, they had El... Was it Sheffy? He, he got killed, but they have had sightings here and there, but... You know, you hit upon, to me, what's sad is that, yes, this lack of connectivity, whether it be freeways or the border wall or you, wow. you name it, uh, aside from it impacting people, um, it has cut off connectivity for these species that we used to have, and, you know, mm-hmm. jaguars and ocelots, more in abundance, yeah, especially in the southwest. We don't think of ocelots and jaguars as being... We used to have know, jaguars American. in California, and that we oh, don't... Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't know that until... Like the Grand Canyon is kind of like their extent of their range. The, the real, the southern tip, I unless I was misinformed, oh, I was told we be. used to have them. Yeah, and which is, you know, amazing to me that 
that, or actually amazing is not the right word. It's, again, something that is wondrous that they used to be here, but sad that we drove them out. Well, I had Mm -hmm. a, I don't know if anybody, well, Werner Glenn was a rancher that I knew when I was in Mm -hmm. Uh, Bisbee in Douglas, Arizona, who treed a mountain lion. He had that famous, or a uh, jaguar. He treed a gorgeous jaguar. It must have been like 300 pounds or something in the Pelincila Mountains with his, with his hound dogs. You know, he's lion hunting. He was a lion hunter, but he saw his, a jaguar. And wow. he got a really good photo of it just oh, before it disappeared. But, but th- those like, states are doing some, New Mexico just, um, uh, the Pete, the Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete, as we know him, uh, he was just down there. The federal government, um, which are my organization, the National Wildlife Federation, helped get this through, uh, uh, appropriated $350 million towards wildlife crossings. Um, oh, really? And New Mexico, at the state level, just passed um, a budget with a pretty substantial amount for crossings, and they have a number of projects. So what's great is this is starting to really take off across the country, which is hopeful. Yeah. Well, that area is particularly important because of the habitats between, like, the Chihuahua Desert and the Sonora Desert. And the, I don't know if you've ever been to Portal, New Mexico, but the um, Chiricahua National Monument. I haven't been there, no. It's just unbelievably it? gorgeous. But, yeah, it was like there was a ranching family called the Clumps who had been in there for four or five generations. The patriarch of the family, nobody knew how old he really was probably in the 80s, but he lived in a stone line cabin 60 miles from the nearest, you know, paved road. Wow. And it would take like two or three days to get supplies out to him on horseback. And he shot a jaguar, shot a jaguar. And then his sons put him on a, in the back of their truck and they just went around showing people, that the showing it off. <laughs> it was really sad. I know why they shoot were, it. <laughs> yeah, well, because he could. And of course, as ranchers, they... Think of predation. They're not necessarily wrong to think that, but the exchange of value between what they could get, say, if they were just guiding people to get a sighting, right? You know, way more than a cattle, more, way more than a cow at you know sixty cents a pound or whatever. But it was just like so incredible to think of these what we consider jungle creatures in this I know. high desert. Like they're so adaptable. And I just get a feeling that if the, you know, we're more aware, like what your projects with the wildlife corridors and such, that this, you know, isn't going to be unusual anymore, that we will have much more coexistence. I I agree with you. I think we're, you know, we didn't know when we put the 101 in what we were doing. I think when I was coming up in conservation 30, got 30 years ago now, and it's hard to believe, um, you know, the, the sort of paradigm, the definitive view was, you know, you put a side of Yosemite here, you put a side of Santa Monica Mountains, you know, here. Check the box. We, we have these protected spaces for habitat. There was no attention towards connectivity. And that's what I love about science. When we learn we were wrong because of evidence, we shift, um, strategies and, so we now know that, oh, my God, no, actually connectivity, connected space is actually more important than these big tracks that animals yeah. need movement. Or populations to, um, yeah. you know, interbreed and coexist and natural selection and everything else that goes plus, along with that. Exactly. And plus for resiliency, you look at a place like Yosemite, you know, one of the best protected places on the planet, and wildlife are still having, you know, struggles. So we now know 
that, you know, what to do. And I agree with you. It's hopeful in that the wildlife themselves are doing what they can. Look at P-22, like he he's doing what he can, or the jaguars starting to come back up, or any number of animals you can point to are trying to make do with these human spaces. And it's up to us to kind of give them, you know, give them some more to help. And the good news is, I think, you know, like why I'm here in Ojai. Most people want to. I find I that. They do. Yeah. yeah. One thing that a conversation I had that stuck with me was, I don't know if people remember Earth First. Oh, my right? God. Yeah, yeah, that's a blast the, from the past. Yeah. yeah. The, um, you know, monkey wrench gang and so Ed Abbey, eco-activist. Yep. But there's a guy named Dave Foreman who was more or less in charge for several decades of that. And he's very colorful. Always good for a quote. When you're a reporter, you want these guys that will pick up the calls. And I was asking him, why are we having all these ocelot and jaguarundi sightings of these cats along the San Pedro Corridor and jaguars coming through the Peloncillos and the Animus Mountains? And he's like, you know, isn't that a a sign that the habitat's improving? He goes, no, no. It's the sign that the habitat on the Mexican side is just getting so worse that this habitat looks good by comparison. I remember Dave Foreman. I mean, I grew up on those, you know, Edward Abbey and the Monkey Wrench Gang. and Desert Solitaire. Desert Solitaire. It's, 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 you know, it is a great, and I think what they taught me was, you know, that it's worth fighting for relentlessly. That's probably where I get it is those early, but he's right. I think that, yeah, wildlife in more human spaces is, Something we have to we have to be more accepting of, but yes, it doesn't mean wildlife's doing better. It means they're out of options. Yeah, yeah. I really that did stick mm-hmm. with me because a natural inclination to think, oh, look at them, they're they're thriving, they're returning to their habitats. Yeah. Well, because they're getting squeezed out. They're getting squeezed out exactly. Well, speaking of which, we had for the first time in a hundred plus years a wolf in Ventura County. I know. Oh. What was that like for you as somebody on the front lines? What did you think about that? So I um I worked in Yellowstone for four years and hearing wolves howl, you know, outside my back door was one of the most magical experiences seeing them. I think, you know, the our wild spaces are not complete without wolves. There's just I something missing. Well, it's also the ecosystems require yes. predators to move ungulates around and so forth yeah. just because of the – And the, co- the coyotes need a, a challenge here in California. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like so. they've – They've ru- been top dogs yeah, for too long. Yeah, they've ruled they, – they've had the – They're getting you know, cocky. Exactly. They're getting cocky. They need a little challenge. But so when OR11 uh, – OR7 came on the scene in 2011, uh, that was magical. We were cheering him on when he finally, you know – Crossed the California border, but then, like a lot of Californians, went back to Oregon to raise his family. Uh, but he, uh, at that time, I started. Um, uh, I made a prediction that is in writing, so I can prove it that we will have wolves in the Sierra in ten years, and I wasn't too far off. So R ninety three, the same wolf that came down here, he came right on the border of Yosemite, came within fifteen miles of my house. And then makes this extraordinary journey, in some respects even more remarkable than P-22s, yeah. crossing through Fresno in the Central Valley over to the Central Coast and then almost makes it to L.A. Um, it was really over 500 Oh, miles. my God. It was, just goes to show you the extremes they'll go to find a suitable habitat. Ex- exactly. And 
exactly. Looking for mates. He might have been looking for a mate. Probably both, right? Places. And he was heading back up, and he was so close. In fact, where he got hit is another target area when you ask about oh, wow, where else. That five, uh, if he had just made it across the five, he's in, you know, Tan Ranch. He's, you know, has almost a, then a clear cut path back up to the Sierra. Um, Without any major roads. So, but yeah, that was wondrous. And we even were contemplating, oh my God, will he be using the wildlife crossing when it's finished? Right. Wow, coming into Los Angeles. Yeah. So, but his, his death was perhaps not surprising, but still pretty devastating that, oh, this poor wolf made it all this way and then, you know, gets hit by a car yet again. Yeah. So, um, I, that's why to me it keeps me going. I mean, you know, building, the Wallace-Sandenberg Wildlife Crossing was not easy. Um, there were t- a lot of times where I thought it might not happen. Um, it it took over my life. It required a lot of sacrifice, but and still does. But I don't know how to do anything different. Back to almost like the you know Edward Abbey, like the, it's a moral imperative. I mean, you think you think of an animal like Or ninety three, and he deserves this effort. You know, P twenty two, he deserves us in myself doing this and I just don't know you know I can't stop because I just think of those animals that that have already been lost and I don't want to lose anymore well I was in um, as I mentioned uh, Safford Arizona Gila River Valley the White Mountains Blue Mountains of Arizona gorgeous country like people don't think about that as you know for the just the wonder of it and those great big elk and so forth but they reintroduced the gray wolves uh, back in the early mid nineties and immediately there were conflicts. You can imagine that's a pretty rural conservative area. They thought that was like just outrageous that they would thrust these and, you know, it goes right into the sagebrush rebellion and yep. all the, you know, civil disobedience of these uh, ranchers just sport shooting these wolves. But what was, Fun was in the newsroom. Most of the people were, you know, happy to get happy to see him die. It was like always a little celebration whenever. And I'm like, oh, I was like, oh, I don't think so. I don't think you guys really understand the big picture of, you know, the chances. Oh, what if they kill a kid? So I started keeping a ch- in the chalkboard notes where we keep all the list of all the stories people were working on. I go, you know, uh, wolves zero, humans thirteen. Yeah. Oh, oh wait a minute. Oh, another one got killed. Oh, fourteen. Oh. Yeah, and that's like, about it. You're, yeah. I mean, I, I understand, I guess I never understand it because we live with risks every day. You are a thousand, I don't even know what the stat is, but you are way more likely to be killed by a stepladder than a wolf or a mountain lion. Um, you are incredibly more likely, like just in California alone, 3,000 to 4,000 people a year die in automobiles, yet we get in our car every day. Yeah. You look at, at just in California, mountain lions in the last hundred years with 40 million people, there have been 22 attacks. Six have been fatal. Um, we never want it to happen. And those numbers are people that, but on the other hand, my God, like you should not be, if you are really worried about death, don't be killing wolves or yeah. mountain lions. Don't get in your car. So it, it's just putting that risk in perspective. And I, yeah, I, you know, living in Yellowstone was really interesting and interesting is the word I say when I'm a little lost for words. Um, here you are at this beautiful, you know, the site of two of the, Biggest conservation success stories in the country, you know, bringing bison back and bringing wolves oh, yeah. back. And, you know, you literally walk 
outside the park boundaries and they're blowing the bison and wolves away. And it's, um, it's, it's a attitude. I just, I'm with you. I, I don't quite understand it. Um, you know, the economics made sense until I dove into it. it, it I mean, the loss of cattle to wolves is next to nothing where there's, you know, even domestic dogs kill more. So th- there is sort of that, I don't know, may, does it go back to kind of like the dark woods of uh, what was the Nathaniel the Hawthorne Grim, or something? Brothers, yeah, I don't know. But I, I don't understand the war on wildlife. I never have, um, especially since, you know, we we play with this balance at at our own sacrifice. We start eliminating mountain lions and wolves from the ecosystem. That starts impacting our own health, which, you know, we just came, well, by some uh, measures, we may still be in a pandemic. Why? Unhealthy ecosystems. You look at uh, the, yeah, I mean, the East Coast where I grew up, we, the Eastern Panther, which is just another name for mountain lion, uh, was hunted to extinction. I didn't have mountain lions growing up. Uh, what do you also have back there? An overpopulation of deer and higher incidences of Lyme disease. Lyme disease, the lantern flies now, the it, emerald yeah, ash Yeah, I mean, we are... It goes on and on and Exactly. On. So if I can't get you to love wildlife like wolves or mountain lions, at least respect that them being on the landscape is actually something that is going to ensure your own health and the health of your children long term. Well, um, I don't know... Uh, there was a few ranchers in southeast Arizona that practiced holistic range management. Yeah. Alan Savory, this park ranger in, um, I want to say, South Africa, or no, Rhodesia, would notice the wildebeest herds getting, you know, chased around by the wolves and the impact it had on the, on the, uh, the plains, how the, the wildebeest hooves would create these indentations that would catch the rain that would help the seeds sprout and their urine and their feces in a way that they would get chased around from one small area to another like paddocks and they would simulate that with you know their range management practices to intensely graze smaller areas over a shorter period of time and then move them move them around in a cycle simulate the effects of having apex predators yep and you could really tell the difference in the landscape. It was really powerful. I think people don't see the big picture. They think about, well, what about what if they get a kid? You know, what if one of these wolves kills a kid? Right. Oh yeah, I mean, but have it's you just... met some kids. Oh my God, I mean, I had kids. You know, there's some kids that. Oh my God, I don't know. I probably shouldn't joke. <laughs> well, it's just to me, it's it's the likelihood of that is so. Rare, right? Yeah, that it's more likely to get hit by. I mean, you, 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 yeah. You should say, well, why am I putting my kid in this car? He, you know, the risk is. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's where I just keep yeah, coming the, back to trade offs. Yeah, but you know, some people. I, I think what is hopeful, like in a place like Ojai, is a lot of people. You can coexist. You can both farm and have wildlife, right? It is. I, I think what's great is it is not an either or. And some people do it really well, right? They, that you, you, you know, whether you use livestock dogs or, or different ranching practices or whatever, there are ways that you can have both. And I, I, and I really applaud either people with pets like myself, uh, or ranchers who, who do what it takes so that we have successful coexistence on both sides, you know. Well, we were talking mm. before about Carrizo Plain, oh, which yes. I, I think about that wolf making it almost all the way down there and how what a lovely habitat that would be because 
they have to call the elk herd yes. especially. And couldn't wolves handle that task? Absolutely. They used to. I mean, when you think of the Great Central Valley, and I actually was out at Wind Wolves Preserve, one of the most beautiful places, I think, in California, right like it's on the border. It's not too far away. It's only exactly. like two and a half, three hours. And we had um, one of the most California moments you could ever have there. We were standing on this hill, and the, the whole Central Valley, you could see Bakersfield, but it was all covered in this blanket of fog. You could see the Sierra in the distance, and then we had this herd of elk lope over the hillside. It was what California used to look like yeah. with wolves chasing, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know why OR-93 didn't stop there. Like, oh, it would have been, you know, he had elk, he had deer, yeah, he had all this well, open space. Well, pronghorns might have been a little tough for a wolf to catch, but probably not impossible. They they can outrun wolves. In fact, in Yellowstone, but their, their um, babies can't. They actually, pronghorns are a really interesting animal, just to go down a, a tangent rabbit hole. They're outrunning a predator that doesn't exist anymore, the cheetah. Yeah. And so they can outrun almost anything, mountain lions, wolves, uh, you name it. Um, so they, you know, they sort of are, if not at the top of the food chain, don't have a predator that can catch them. It happens, yeah. How yeah. long is it the, the Pleistocene era or beyond before we had cheetahs went extinct in North America? Yeah, 30, was it 40,000 years ago. Yeah, the, and it, again, another tangent. There's some theory that the reason, you know, mountain lions used to be at the bottom of, you know, they had, you know, giant lions and oh, um, yeah. saber-toothed cats dire and wolves. dire wolves that could prey on them. They're now at the top yeah. uh, of the food chain. But there's some, there is some, um, you know, sort of theory that one of the reasons they are still here and the cheetah isn't is mountain lions, unlike cheetahs and dire wolves, they are, again, stealth predators. They're hiding. They don't like wide open spaces. They're not mm. running across open spaces after deer or elk. And so the theory, one of the theories is that unlike the cheetah or the, you know, they didn't cross the land bridge because it was too open. And yeah. so they stayed here. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it's true, but I read that. I thought it was. So because they're um, agoraphobics, they they are still in North America. Yeah. Well, we think maybe, oh, they're so resilient, but no, mm-hmm. it just happened to be an adaptation yeah. that worked in their favor. Yep. And it could have, could have gone the other way. Yeah, I mean, look at all the other mighty ones that aren't here, right? So, yeah. yeah. Did you ever wish you were back in the place to see and uh, see a woolly mammoth or a mastodon? Yes. Yes. Um, I do. I, I, yeah. what a, what an incredible, um, uh, even 10,000 years ago, I'd like to see. Laura Cunningham has this book. It's, I think it's out of print, but you can find it, A State of Change. And she's an artist and a scientist, and it was published by Heyday. And she, with her art, reimagines the California landscapes 10,000 years ago, and it is incredibly moving. Uh, I think, yeah, it would be, it, I mean, imagine like standing in Yosemite Valley and watching a dire wolf or a giant sloth under half dome, oh, you know? <laughs> well, the, uh, the mini mammoths on, uh, Channel Islands made it right up to about 10,000 years ago. Or oh, maybe did they? Oh, recent, that's maybe even more recent. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. There was a mastodon skeleton dug up where I grew up in the Great Lakes area near, um, you know, near Lake Erie. And uh, Allegheny Mountains, that was just, they dated it first at 700 A.D. And wow. And people all freaking out. But then it turned out, no, it was more like 3,500 B.C. or like 5,000, mm-hmm. 5,000, but not anywhere near as long as they thought. So they almost made it into, you know, the modern era. They came so close. 
It was just really what a, how marvelous that would be to just get that. One of my favorite places in L.A. is the La Brea Tar Pits. When oh I was a little girl God. growing up in Massachusetts, they'd have, like, specials on it. And I always remember being fascinated watching it on TV and then to be able to see it. But, yeah, when you just think of what used to roam L.A., you know. Yeah, yeah it's, right down, right in, right in the middle of Los Angeles. Yeah, right just, in the middle of L.A. You, and yep. still they're pulling stuff out. It's so fun to go to Griffiths Park and just see the, uh, you know, the archaeologists at work. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Okay. Well, I think that we should be wrapping up. I know you've gotten. I'm okay. Rent. I'm I'm okay for. Well, I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about mm-hmm. your how you got into this field. Where did you grow up, and what was your path? Yeah, you're, you're I a luminary um, in the wildlife field. So it's a big <laughs> big honor for us to have you here in Ohio. I you know I, I I feel weird. I mean, I just love my work. It's a labor of love, and I feel really. I was actually just talking about this with Molly this morning. I work hard, and I'm very grateful I have this platform now. But you know, the idea of kind of being this like someone's like you're famous. I'm like, no, I I don't really look at it that way. I look at it as. Um, what I like is people are connecting to the work in really meaningful ways. And if I can be, you know, an effective voice for that, I really love that. But yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts and, but always loved wildlife. My dad, uh, loved, um, uh, Cape Cod and, um, we'd go whale watching all the time. He also would, when a whale would wash up, we would go to see the whale. So I have vivid memories of seeing dead whale carcasses. Dead stinking, whale carcass. dead stinking whales. But, um, but even the backyard wildlife, like it's really interesting to me where I grew up in uh, north of Boston. The best I could hope for in my yard was a squirrel, bird, frog. Uh, we didn't even have raccoons or coyotes mm. or anything. You know, the wildlife at that point had been banished, right? It had been yeah. hunted. These sub, you know, I lived in one of those typical subdivisions. If you go back now, coyotes, deer, everything, but we had none of that growing up. But when I was six, uh, a place I would play called Indian Rock uh, for sale sign went up. And I remember it was the first time, like, I I asked my mom, like, well, what does that mean? And they're like, well, they're going to build houses there. Uh-huh. And I thought of the frogs there and the, the turtles. And it was the first time I realized, like, something could be lost, right, that, that this wasn't, that wildlife wasn't protected. So I went around and collected money. I think I raised five bucks, and you can imagine how this ended. <laughs> uh, so I didn't save that, but I, I, that's, I mean, you can trace what I do now right back to, to that yeah, childhood. Early activism. Yeah, early activism. Uh yeah. Well, it's interesting to see the wildlife coming back, especially back east with coyotes and so forth, because my brother, well, I grew up in a hunting culture, you know, the deer, deer season was the biggest celebration of the year and turkey hunts in the fall and the spring, spring turkey hunting is really something to ducks and everything else. But these coyotes just started coming in when I was a boy, like in the sixties and now they're everywhere. But they also have these koi wolves. Yes. They call them these. At first they thought they were just some kind of a hybrid with, um, domestic dogs interbreeding, but no, they're their own species. Yeah, their own species, yeah. And they're, they're, they're a little scary because they're not as shy as coyote. They're more, they're more like coyote attitudes where they're not shy and they're wolf size. Like yeah. they get 75, 80, 90 pounds or bigger than like a German shepherd. And they're gorgeous creatures, oh my God. But the problem is that they scavenge close to 
humans, and I do believe there has been one one killing in oh, has there Nova been? Scotia or something. It's so, so unfortunate because this is, you know, evolution in action. This is just since they figured the first one, they backtraced it to like 1912 in Algonquian Park, the first interbreeding between the wolf and the coyote, and now there's thousands of them spread across, you know, Ontario and western New York and uh, up to the Adirondacks, really. It's and you know it's interesting to me because you know if I could go back and study, you know, go back and do my field of study again, it was the biology field, but also an MBA. I'm not your you know, kind of typical tree hugger, but hmm. on the other hand, this how people, how urban areas, or how human activity and behavior influences animal evolution is fascinating to me um, because we are like the coyote is a great example. You know, we've been trying to kill them off for, you know, 200 years at least, mm. you know, uh, us Europeans. And they're just getting stronger. In fact, genetically, they're evolving and, and adapting in ways to our human. Like, yeah, you know, they're getting bigger. They're getting, yeah. And, and they know how to live among us. Like, they're mm. raccoons. Another example, you look at Toronto. Toronto, like the P22 in Toronto are raccoons. They literally, there's a, a documentary called Raccoon Nation. A scientist there, Dr. Suzanne McDonald, who's been studying them. Those raccoons are evolving, not just adapting, but physiologically evolving like the coyotes. They, they can open doors, like their, their oh, digits yeah, are getting. So yeah, so they, you know, to me, this is fascinating. Like, we talk about like our roadways, and you could even argue like P22. Is he someone on the spectrum of mountain lions kind of evolving towards greater tolerance towards people? Cause they have to. Resilience and stealth that he was able to figure out how to cross yeah. those. What if he'd have been able to breed in that trait? Maybe it was inheritable. Maybe yeah. it was a, some kind of gene expression that could have worked its way into the population. And exactly. So like the koi wolf to me is an interesting example of that probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for, you know, how we treat both wolves and coyotes, right? You yeah. probably would have had, you know, they, they, I mean, wolves and coyotes usually are like when I lived in Yellowstone, wolves will just take out a coyote, right? Yeah, there's very little yeah. uh, m- mingling of populations. But you introduce the human either dynamic or, or something, and now we have them. So, yeah, it's interesting to me how our own behavior is actually, you know, maybe not even just wiping out wildlife, but causing them to evolve in ways they wouldn't have. I don't know what the answer is, but it's kind of a fascinating thing to contemplate. Yeah, to think that we stand apart from evolution and natural selection is folly. It's true. And what are we doing to ourselves? Back to that original question. I don't know if you watched, uh, sorry, it's total tangent, but it is applicable. The Last of Us, I thought, was a, an incredible oh, yeah. series. HBO show. Oh. Pedro Pascal. And well, yeah. Pe- it I mean, really, really. Let's just put it out there. Yeah, Pedro, of course, I kept watching for that. But... I mean, that show had me terrified in the first five minutes with the two scientists talking about, you know, the, how, you know, fungus, and, and this is in nature, you do see how fungus... Well, cordyceps are particularly yeah, scary. Exactly. So, and and I thought they they did that really well, and that the zombies were actually something that could occur. That's and very plausible. It's very plausible. So, again... Getting back to maybe the original topic of this, like we need wildlife. Wildlife needs us and we need healthy ecosystems because if we start, you know, tool, you know, start messing with that balance too much, who knows? You know, uh, who knows? Uh, all right, Beth, thank yeah. you. We've 
been very generous with your time. I know Thank you're only you. supposed to be here for like 40 minutes. Oh, no, I'll stay. It's, 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 it's fine. It's real. Thanks for having me. It was really nice to, uh, just uh, talking with you about wildlife. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan here. Just thinking out loud. Uh, as you could tell, I got a little animated in that discussion. I'm normally known for being much more phlegmatic. But I love wildlife. I've lived near the country in small towns my whole life where a lot of people would think of some of these wildlife coexistence as being somewhat abstract. It's been very concrete for me. And I consider myself privileged to have had so many intimate encounters with our wild brethren. In fact, on Beth Pratt's website, which I urge you all to check, I'll be posting up some links in the show notes for that. She also gives a wonderful TED Talk, a very popular TED Talk, about coexistence. The um, quote she puts up there from Henry Beston, which I thought was particularly thoughtful about wildlife. Quote, they are not brethren, they are not underlings, they are other nations caught with ourselves in the net of life and time fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. And then another quote from one of my favorite authors, Rebecca Solnit. I think anytime you can pick up a book by her, you're going to enjoy yourselves. But Rebecca wrote, quote, the world is wild, that life is unpredictable in its goodness and danger, that the world is larger than your imagination. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.